So we're in the little book of Jude. It's the last little book that you're going to encounter uh, at the end of your Bible, right before Revelation. So um, I'm pretty much just going to camp in one um, one chapter, or excuse me, one verse, not one chapter. There is only one chapter in the entire book. So, um, but I'm just going to pretty much camp in in one verse. Actually, it's it's kind of two verses, and they're separated a little bit from one another. But um, I want you to uh, I want you to hear the lead up to that. Um, so I'm going to read. Uh, I'm going to read all the way down to verse, hmm, well, I'm going to read down to verse 8, all right? I read the whole book, the whole letter last week, um, but I'm going to read down to verse 8 just so we kind of have our bearings here. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was eager, excuse me, though I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you that although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served serve, excuse me, as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. All right. And he goes on to talk about what happens when people fall away and start uh, believing lies. Um, Tonight, we're going to look at the nature of the false teaching uh, that was being brought to uh, Jude's uh, hearers, and I want us to compare that to false teaching that we might encounter today. So I want you to begin, even as we go into this, we, we really began to talk about this last week, but I want you to consider examples of false teaching that you have encountered. Do you recognize it? Now, we live in a country that was once known for tolerance, or at least tolerance was preached, until, of course, a different group gains power, and then they're intolerant of the other side. If we're going to be tolerant, we're going to be tolerant. We're not going to be tolerant. You don't have to agree with someone to be tolerant of them. But tolerance does not include acceptance of certain teaching. Uh, You know, you and I can agree to disagree. We can have debates. Debate is not a bad thing. Debate can be a healthy thing. The problem with debates that happen today is that uh, people are simply seeking to uh, best the other person. It's almost like a UFC fight, right? It's like a competition. It's like a boxing match, right? We're just trying to beat the other person. And that's not what you want to do in a debate. What you want to do is present your side and the evidence from your side 
And you want to listen to the other side and listen to the evidence that they present. And in so doing, we can learn to understand each other better. We can be strengthened in our own position, or we can look at our own position with a more critical eye and make adjustments that are necessary. But um, simply because culture has changed and decided that certain things that were once understood and can clearly be seen as biblically wrong are now biblically culturally acceptable doesn't mean that we need to accept those perspectives in our churches. Um, What I want you to notice here is Jude wanted to encourage these people. He did want to write them. Now, we don't know who this is. We know that Jude, or we believe that Jude, is one of the brothers of Jesus. Um, He says that he's the brother of James, and if you remember the introduction from two weeks ago, uh, simply saying James without any other designation would indicate that this is somebody who is very well known, and that would likely be the pastor of the Jerusalem church, who was also a brother of Jesus, right? Interestingly, as I pointed out two weeks ago, neither one of them says that they are the brother of Jesus. They say there's a servant of Jesus. Jude says he's the brother of James, right? So there's a recognition that although these brothers of Jesus once didn't even believe in him, that he's not just somebody that's related to them through Mary. This is the son of God. This is now the one that they serve. So they're not pulling some sort of rank, uh, some sort of uh, family relationship and saying, you need to pay attention to us because, you know, we grew up in the same household because they didn't even really believe in him while he was, you know, in their midst there. So that's not a a source of pride for them, certainly. Um, So let's look at verse 4 and then verse 8 as verses that tell us what the, the, the heresy that was being perpetrated that Jude is addressing, what, what it was. He says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed. Now, uh, that's, that's a good translation. Uh, the word there um, that is translated crept in, it, it's, it means that they are sneaking in, right? They, they don't have a, a, an honest purpose. Not everybody that goes to church goes to church for the right reasons, right? You have a big church that's got a big singles ministry, you're going to have plenty of people that are going there just to get a, you know, uh, if not a mate, somebody to date, or perhaps they have uh, less noble purposes than that. Um, I did youth ministry for many years, and I saw teenagers that came because their parents let them get out of the house because it was, you know, a credible pursuit. It, you know, they weren't out at the mall running around, running wild. They weren't out on the street. They were supervised. They were in a youth group. Uh, but they came for a variety of different reasons. And what you would see is that when they were tested, if they weren't there to worship the Lord, if that had not been, uh, if they hadn't received the word, then as soon as they're tested, they just kind of drift off. Um, and again, relationships were one of the primary tests. What I would notice is you'd get two young people that uh, start in a, a dating relationship. They obviously are getting very, very close to each other, probably in an unhealthy way. Um, and then when they break up, one or both of them doesn't want to be a part of the youth group anymore. Well, then that indicates very clearly that they're not there for the right reason, right? Now, it's difficult to be in the same room with somebody that you just broke up with, but if you hadn't had a healthy, unhealthy relationship with them, then you can get through that, right? 
Uh, we can learn to we can learn to uh, to understand each other and forgive each other and and move forward. Another thing that I would see with young people is as soon as they got old enough to get a job, job said you got to work Sunday. Job becomes God, and suddenly I don't see them anymore. Right? Um, another idol uh, was sports. So I'd see kids. I remember I had a, a group of young men who were in my youth group. And they'd been involved in baseball, you know, from the time they were young. Um, as soon as they got into high school, that becomes a year-round vocation for these kids. I mean, sports, is it's a ridiculous driving force in some families. That is their, their life. They just, church is not important anymore. It's all about that sport. And baseball is, and I like baseball. I enjoyed playing baseball, but uh, it is a skill-oriented sport that requires a lot of practice to maintain that skill. And these coaches find ways to keep these kids doing baseball year-round. And they don't care about Wednesday anymore. They don't care about Sunday anymore. They'll schedule games and practices whenever. You know, in the end, you're either going to love Jesus and worship Jesus or you're not. And it's interesting to me that we always, uh, the church used to be very important in people's lives, but now the church has to bend to every other whim, no matter what it is. Oh, I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to do the other thing. And church is just not significant anymore. Well, it's not about church. It's about the Lord. Oh, well, I can worship the Lord anywhere. Are you actually worshiping the Lord out there on that baseball field? Probably not. Okay, well, I can worship the Lord at the lake. Well, you can, but fellowship is important, and gathering with God's people is important. Um, so what I'm trying to say is that people come to church for a lot of different reasons, and when they're tested, you will find out whether those reasons were to worship the Lord and learn the Word or not. Well, these folks crept in uh, with a uh, uh, an illicit purpose. They weren't coming to worship the Lord. They were coming to draw away followers, all right? Um, so what we're going to learn here is number one, false teachers have infiltrated the Christian community that Jude is writing to quietly and secretly with the intent to challenge and change Christian doctrine. Listen to what, uh, the, uh, the author Green from the Tyndale New Testament commentary says, certain men who had secretly slipped in or wormed their way in the New English Bible translates it. The rare word uh, parasiduo um, is similar to another word that means to smuggle in secretly. And that other word is used in Galatians 2, 4 and uh, 2 Peter 2, 1. And 2 Peter is very similar to Jude. It is a sinister and secretive word. There's a good word, sinister. They had sinister intent. You need to be careful who comes into your, your fellowship, who comes into your home, right? We're very accepting in this church, and we've always been that way. But, uh, you know, I can give you example after example in the years that I've been in ministry of people who have come into church and have done all kinds of things. Uh, we used to do this ministry called House of Judgment. It was huge. We had thousands of people that came through this thing, and a lot of people wanted to volunteer and help and act and so forth. And I can remember uh, there was a, a man who was helping us, who was volunteering for us. This is when I was over at, at the sister church here. And uh, the, uh, the finance team over there actually, you know, had him take up the offering. Now, he wasn't the only one. You know, they 
pass the plates and so forth. They started finding, though, in the services where he took up the offering, there was no cash in the offering. It was all checks. They started to suspect that maybe he was taking the cash. And when they confronted him, of course, he never showed up again because he was taking cash out of the offering plate, right? There's one example. I can give worse examples, but I won't. The point is, people may come in for that purpose, for a monetary purpose. Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. So Jesus knew that this was going to happen. We need to understand that not everybody who comes into the church, although we want to accept everybody and love everybody, has the proper intent. So what did Jesus say? Be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. So I've always got one eye on everybody, right? Number two, these men are immoral and antinomian. Antinomian means that they, they don't agree with the law. They're against the law. Listen to what verse 8 says um, when it continues to help us understand what these people were like. In like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Um, earlier in verse 4, it says that they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So um, this may have been an early version of Gnosticism. Um, interpreters are uh, back and forth about that. But Gnosticism basically uh, held that the Creator God was actually evil. The God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, the God who created heaven and earth is actually evil. They identified him with Satan. And they identified Satan, the serpent, who tempted Eve with wisdom and what is good. So you can see who's driving Gnosticism, right? Um, they considered that you had to have a certain type of secret knowledge in order to be saved from this material world. Well, there was a whole group of Gnostics who believed that since the material world was evil, you could do whatever you wanted with your body. Right? You could indulge in any kind of flesh because it's just passing away anyway. Now, not all Gnostics responded to the physical body the same way, but this is why this group might have been uh, uh, Gnostic like that because some of them were very antinomian. Which, by the way, uh, in the mid-2000s, in the wake of Dan Brown's book, his novel, uh, The Da Vinci Code, there was this renewed interest in the so-called Gnostic Gospels and Gnostic writings like the Gospel of Thomas and so forth, which are some very, very strange esoteric writings that advance this philosophical idea. And if you read these, you know, if you've ever read Scripture and you read these Gnostic so-called Gospels, you will understand that you're not even these aren't even the same types of material that you're reading. And although these Gnostic Gospels may mention names like Jesus and disciples like Peter and James and so forth, it becomes readily apparent that they're not talking about the same people that the authentic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are talking about. What they've done is these Gnostics have seen the, um, the credibility of Christianity and the good name of Jesus Christ, and they've simply used it to try to validate their position. Guess what, folks? People do that today. 
they use the name Jesus to name all sorts of things. So you got folks over on the 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 alt right, the KKK, the uh, the race haters, the 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 genuine racists who you know they're they're Christians. They'll burn a cross in your yard, but they're Christians, right? They'll use horrible names for you know people that are from other countries or people that are from other ethnicities and so forth. Oh, but they're Christians. And then, of course, you've got these folks that are that are over on the left to uh, perpetrate essentially Marxism and try to use Christianity as a way to advance that Marxism. Well, Christians have always been givers, and the early Christians practiced communal living. They did sell their possessions and share with everyone that was there. But that doesn't mean that they were advancing this theory that government should own everything and that everybody should just take from the government what they need, right? In fact, the Bible is very clear that uh, if you don't work, you don't eat. You, you need to work. You need to provide something, something of value for people, okay? Uh, the Bible is not opposed to private property. The Bible is very strongly uh, behind us being loving and caring and giving people, but you can't give if you don't have anything. And you don't have any choice if somebody else is taking all your money and giving it to perhaps people that are not working, perhaps people that are uh, bilching the government out of, of money and so forth. So Basically, you have people on both sides of the political divide that are seeking to claim Jesus. Um, A couple of months ago, I read part of an email that I had received um, by uh, some leftist who was said, you know, Jesus was, you know, was far left, and you know, he started listing all of these things that Jesus would support and so forth. This is this is like these folks that. these female priests that bless abortion clinics, right? Oh, Jesus would be behind abortion. No, no, he wouldn't, all right? So this is why we need to cling closely to the Scripture and not just listen to someone's profession. Anybody can profess Christianity. But if you don't know what the content of Christianity is, as Jude said, the faith once for all passed down to the saints— if you don't know what that is, then people can use the good name of Jesus and choose to name all sorts of other things, all right? So these particular men were immoral. Their conduct was immoral from a biblical perspective, an antinomian against the law. And the latter, that is their antinomianism, their refusal to, to um, not only obey, but to even uh, to acknowledge, they refused to even acknowledge that there was a moral law was the justification for their immorality. Number three, they're ungodly. Now, what does that mean, ungodly? Old word, right? Godly, ungodly. Well, what does that mean? It just kind of sounds like a religious word, right? But it's used to translate a pair of words in Greek. Uh, Godly is often the translation for the Greek word eusebiah. And it means to be reverent. Someone who reverences God and God's word and God's people, right? You you know people that are reverent. They're, They're godly people. They're respectful people. 
and you know people that are not. They're hostile, they're hateful, they're name-calling, they don't respect anyone or anything except their own ideas, right? Ungodly represents these folks, and this is just someone who is irreverent, you know? And this is why I don't really see comedy films anymore. I don't go and see comedians because they're bawdy, they're irreverent, and we think that's a good thing. Oh, he's so irreverent. That's not a good thing, friend. That's why we are where we are right now. And these folks were irreverent. They were ungodly, okay? Um, it also says that they are, uh, they are blasphemous. What does blasphemy mean? I mean, you use uh, some bad words, right? You say GD, right? Yeah, to a degree. But blasphemy just means you speak out against. So when people speak against the biblical Jesus, that's blasphemy. When they choose to use Jesus' name as a cuss word, that's blasphemy, right? So there was a, there was a, a lady that was... Um, helping my my waiter today at the restaurant where I was eating. And and forgive me, I'm simply quoting here, but she kept saying, oh my God, it's not cute. Because that person is betraying that that's really not your God. And if it was, you're not reverencing him. It's a useless phrase. This is why the third commandment says what? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain or use it in an empty way. If you're even going to use the word God, it should represent something and it should be used with reverence. The Jewish people won't even pronounce the Tetragrammaton, the official Hebrew name of God, which we think is pronounced Yahweh, right? The I am, the self-existent one because they don't want to violate that third command. And you'll see reverent Jews today that won't even spell the word God. They'll write a G, a slash, and a D. And it's their effort to say, we're going to be reverent about this. We're not just going to drop this name like it doesn't matter. But folks like this are going to, uh, to be irreverent and blasphemous in their conduct. I want you to consider who you hang around and how they talk. Now, you don't have to be disagreeable and hateful to people. You can simply withdraw your presence. You can get them alone at some point in time if they're a friend of yours, and you can say, I would just like to address something that you do or that you say all the time that is offensive to me personally, and I'd like for you to think about perhaps not doing it, at least when you're around me. And if you're doing that in a gentle and concerned way, then they may pay attention to you, right? But see, if I just come back at somebody and say, what are you talking about? Don't talk like that. Then I'm not being gentle and courteous and kind. But you know, if they're looking around and they're talking like that and suddenly they turn around and I'm not there, well, maybe they figure something out. I was at this uh, tavern on the square across the street about a month ago. And uh, I decided, this was on a, I think it was on a Monday night. I decided I was going to go across over there. there uh, <laughs> the Dallas Cowboys game was on. I saw it must have been a Monday night football. Dallas Cowboys, oh boy. 
That'll cause you to blaspheme right there, won't it? Um, but I was over there, and there were these guys that were sitting at the bar, and it was just one foul word after another, after another. Now, I grew up in a home that, you know, I heard all sorts of language. But, you know, I went over there initially before I knew the Cowboys game was on. I just went over there just to go over there and just and read. You know, I've got my, my Kindle and just going it, to, it's just a toxic atmosphere. So I just walked to the bar. I handed the, because there's just one guy, there's no waiter. I just handed the, the guy a 20 and I said, I, you know, I'm done. I'm going to take the rest of my stuff out here outside and finish up, you know. And then I went out. Now, sadly, I didn't intend to do this, but I think I slammed the door as I went out. And uh, I just, if you're not careful with that door, you have to just kind of close it. And I think I was just upset anyway. And I just, it went kablam. And I sat down out there. And so uh, maybe 15 minutes later, the, the bartender came out and he tried to hand me my change. I said, oh, no, no, no. I said, you can, you can keep that. He said, oh, I'm sorry about these guys. And I said, hey, you know, it's a bar. What do you do? I told these folks when they put it in over here and wanted to call a tavern, they've got better food than an average bar, but it's a bar. And people are going to act like that. I don't have to be around that. I don't have to deal with that, and neither do you. We don't have to be hateful. I didn't stand up and say, hey, will you guys pipe down? I don't want to hear that, okay? I'm over here trying to read, and you all are using filthy language. No, that's not going to help anything, right? I'm just not going to be a part of it. I'm going to withdraw, and you don't have to do that either, right? But these folks were making their way into the church and doing these sorts of things. I could tell you story after story from the early days of this church when we founded it. It was a bunch of 16 to 24-year-olds acting like 16 to 24-year-olds, right? Um, next, it says um, that uh, they were involved in sensuality. Um, this is the form of immoral conduct that they both pursued and promoted, the word, I've, I've mentioned this previously, it's a common word in the New Testament, and it's the word asylgia, and it refers to unrestrained immoral activity. This is not someone that kind of trips over themselves and makes a mistake and, you know, says, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. I, I shouldn't have been involved in that immoral activity. These are people that are just wide open, unrestrained filthy in every area of their life. And see, the sad thing is in our country and in our culture now, that's just acceptable. That's just a-okay. You want to live with your girlfriend? Oh, y'all break up. Just go live with another girl. Going to live with a guy? Oh, you're not, you know, now, you know, we have this idea of, of well, you know, we don't want to be, we don't want to be uh, uh, binary, Right. We don't want to say I'm male or female. I'm a, a one or a zero. I'm just kind of out in the middle, playing the field, doing whatever feels good. This is Asalgia. This isn't about homosexuality. This isn't about transgenderism. This is about, sensu this is about sensual activity. It's, there's another word you don't hear very often um, that would be an English translation of this word Asalgia, and it's the word licentious or licentiousness. In other words, they give themselves license to do anything and everything, and it's getting worse and worse and worse. I'm not even going to mention some of the things that I think are going to be happening in the next decade or so, but if you read the Old Testament law and you read some of the prohibitions, the reason those prohibitions were there is because as these people entered the land of Canaan, 
both coming out of Egypt and entering the land of Canaan, the scripture says very clearly the reason why God was giving the Israelites the land of Canaan is not because they were good, but because these people were evil. Consider Sodom and Gomorrah. God absolutely incinerated those two cities long before the Israelites came in. Now, when you read Joshua, I mean, quite frankly, it's, it's hard to swallow. When you look at some of the things that the Israelites were doing that they were commanded to do, they were just wiping out entire cities, men, women, children. That just seems horrific. But when you consider how unbelievably vile and immoral these people were, you realize that this was the judgment of God. Don't think that this country will escape it. Don't think that any country will escape it. You can change your cultural mores, but you're not going to change the way God created the world. This is a moral universe. And there are, there are ways that we are to behave and ways we are not to behave. And God has created human relationships in a very, very specific way. And when we violate that, it's not just a matter of preference. Well, those people over there just have that preference. They have that lifestyle. They have that orientation. Listen, you're going to see this starting to come in where, you know, we're talking about uh, uh, um, these immoral relationships uh, between men and men, women and women, men and women, transgenderism and so forth. But you're going to start hearing about transgenerational sexual activity. What does that mean? That's code for pedophiles, pederasty and pedophilia. And you're going you're gonna to hear the same arguments made about sexual orientation. It has been clearly demonstrated that those who deal with pedophilia, pederasty, don't get cured of it. Right? It's not something that they just overcome. It is their orientation. And right now, we're absolutely opposed to that. But you watch. You watch, friends. You watch. And right now, we are justifiably um, abhorrent when we consider that kind of activity. But look at what we're doing to our kids. I, I just read an article uh, about a, a particular uh, decision that had been made that allows uh, children under the age of 16 to take puberty-blocking drugs. When you're under 16, you don't know who you are or what you are or where you're going or what you want. To have a bunch of adults saying, we're now going to permanently scar your body because of how you feel at this very narrow period of time, because of our ideas, my friends, the judgment of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming. Hide yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ and hang on to the truth because this is the nature of these people that were coming into uh, this congregation that Jude is writing, uh, writing to, and this is what we're dealing with today. Um, Green writes, related to the abuse of grace, um, sensuality being perpetrated or promoted and, and that under the guise of, oh, God's just okay with all of it, right? And that's grace. He says, it was an inherent risk in the proclamation of the gospel of free grace, and it has always been so since then. The conclusion many preachers have drawn is to stop preaching free grace. 
The apostolic conclusion was to attack lasciviousness. There's another word that can translate this asylgia, licentious, lascivious, but to continue to preach the grace of God who accepts the unacceptable. You see, we're not going to become legalists and put condemnation on people. We're going to continue to preach the gospel. We're going to continue to help people understand that they can be free, that they can be forgiven. But friend, if you don't believe you're in sin, there's nothing to be forgiven for, and there's no need for grace. If you're licentious, you don't need grace. You don't want grace. What you've chosen to do in order to fight your temptation is to say it's not temptation, it's not really bad. But grace recognizes that there is something wrong and that God can choose to accept you in spite of that and take you on the path where you become healed, where you become right, okay? Um, And then most importantly, they deny Christ, and that is the source of their, their perverse conduct. It's necessary for, for false teachers to deny the Jesus of history as recorded in the Bible in order to pursue their alternate vision for, the, for human conduct and relations. Green again writes, by such unrestrained wickedness, these men were denying Christ and his Father. They claimed to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. There are many ways of denying Christ apart from the obvious one of apostasy. These false teachers were certainly guilty of a practical denial of their faith by the way they lived, and possibly also of a theoretical denial of Christ's deity and lordship by the form of incipient Gnosticism. Big word just means an early form of Gnosticism, which is what I just mentioned to you earlier, okay? Um Thus, like later Gnostics, they may have cast a slur on the Father by urging that the Creator God was not the only or indeed the highest God, and on Jesus by maintaining that he was a mere man on whom the divine Spirit descended at his baptism, but left before the crucifixion. Isn't it interesting? That was a Gnostic idea, adoptionism, right? That uh, Jesus... uh, was adopted by God, so to speak, okay? That when he was baptized, God adopted him into his family. Um, There was another Gnostic idea that Jesus could not have been crucified. And interestingly, Muslims have taken over this idea. Did you know Muslims don't believe Jesus went to the cross? They believe that another man died in Jesus' place. It's the exact inversion of the gospel. The gospel is Jesus dies in your place. The Muslim idea is that somebody else died in Jesus' place because heaven forbid that someone is exalted and they don't believe he's the son of God, but they believe that he was a great prophet. They believe Muhammad is a greater prophet. But no one uh, as exalted as Christ would, uh, would the God allow to, to go to the cross. They completely misunderstand the, uh, the gospel there. So these these ideas about Jesus where we deny that he's actually uh, the virgin-born son of God or we deny that he died on the cross are ways of keeping Jesus from being who the Bible says he is, the son of God who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead on the third day, all right? Um, And then this is a very telling quote, uh, and this quote comes from Martin Luther. They regard themselves 
not him that is not Christ as their Lord. Your true master is the one you actually follow in your day-to-day life. For most of us, the greatest challenge to following Jesus, self, right? I am Lord. That's the challenge that I make, right? Now, interestingly, was their primary motive money? What we find is that um, these there were roving bands of teachers. Um, there were philosophers that did this, religious teachers that did this, but um, they went from place to place and from town to town, and they took up with disciples and started teaching them and then expected them to give them money. This is why Paul never took money from a church that he started while he was there. You see this written, he writes in Corinthians, that those of us who preach the gospel are supposed to receive our living from the gospel. But Paul said, I didn't use any of these rights with you. In fact, he didn't do that with any church while he was there. He started the church. He established the church. He set up the leadership in the church. And then he moved on as the Lord led him to move on. And then those churches would choose to support his continued missionary efforts. He writes uh, to the Philippians, and he says, thank you that you've, uh, you've shown your concern for me. This is the, the famous verse that you've heard quoted in Philippians 4.19, and my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Well, he's saying that because he's responding to their um, generous gift to him. Uh, but Paul, while he was in a particular city, wanted to avoid any sort of um, uh, um, disingenuous accusation that he was only there for the sake of money, right? So oftentimes, Paul would just take up with his trade. He was a tent maker, and he would make tents while he was preaching to them so that he could support himself uh, until he, there were enough churches that he had started that were supporting him that he didn't have to do that. But these roving teachers uh, may have been as interested in pleasure and popularity and power as they were in money. But those are, those are the main reasons why people who don't have Christ do what they do, right? Money, pleasure, popularity. Do you know why Facebook is so popular? This, this, this is why Facebook is so popular. Everybody's always looking for this, right? Why is Instagram so popular? It's the little heart. We're all looking for people to accept us. We're all looking for people to say, hey, you're amazing. What you're doing is cool. I love that picture. I love that quote. I, you know, what you're doing is we're looking for popularity. We're looking for pleasure. And there are plenty of people looking for power. Look at our politicians today. That's what it's all about, friends. Jude's opponents are much like the increasing number of false teachers in many progressive churches today. What we see are men and women who have put Scripture beneath culture. The latter, that is culture, determines their values. Examples, uh, the one I used earlier, blessing an abortion clinic, ordaining practicing homosexuals as bishops, as the Episcopal Church did over a decade ago. Um, ordaining transgender persons as deacons. Methodists have been in discussion about this for years now. Ministers officiating same-sex weddings. Popular authors like Matthew Vines reinterpreting scripture to agree with their acceptance of homosexuality. There's false teaching in Pentecostal and charismatic churches as well, 
where a tendency to elevate subjective experience above Scripture causes misinterpretation and even outright heresy. The United Pentecostals, and there's United Pentecostal Church right up the road here, deny the Trinity. It's called the Jesus-only movement. Now, if you walked into that church, you'd probably enjoy the music. They'd probably be nice to you. But they're committing an ancient heresy. It's called monarchian modalism. And it's patently false. It's not scriptural. But nonetheless, there are plenty of churches out there that uh, seem to be more in line with biblical morality, but theologically, they're not. Okay? Um, Self-proclaimed prophets speak with authority. I don't know what Instagram is doing these days. Right? I don't follow that many people on Instagram. It's the only thing I have on my phone now. I don't have Facebook on my phone. I don't have Twitter on my phone. I don't have uh, Facebook Messenger on my phone. That's why people try to contact me on Messenger all the time. I look at that once a day. <laughs> so if you're, you're waiting for me to get right back to you, it's not on my phone. I'm not getting all those, uh, those messages. Uh, I'm not getting all those notifications. Oh, my gosh. I don't know how some of y'all handle all the notifications. I turn them all off. It's just, it's, and then you wear a watch like this. I would just be, you know, all the time, notifications of everything in the world, right? No, I just turn them all off. That's just mind-boggling. Can't do it. But I do have Instagram, and I only follow a handful of people. Um, and so, but now Instagram is promoting all sorts of other people. So it's this really interesting you know, it, it has a, uh, a way of evaluating your interests, right? And then promoting things that are according to your interests. So I have Calvinists, you know what Calvinism is, right? Um, the folks that are really har hardcore predestination, okay? Um, God chooses who he chooses. Doesn't, your choice doesn't matter. Just God chooses. There's a, there's a group called uh, the Monergists. And monergism is essentially an affirmation of uh, irresistible grace. In other words, God chooses to save you whether you like it or not. Doesn't matter what you choose. Well, that's just not entirely biblical, is it? But they have plenty of texts that would back. But they have a lot of good things to say. And then I have these people that are just like all about prophet so-and-so and prophet so-and-so and prophet so-and-so and prophet so-and-so. I'm like, really? Okay, so if I say I'm a prophet, I'm a prophet? I don't think that's the way it works, okay? I just evaluate what they say, and I look at what Scripture says, but this has let me know that there are a whole lot of people out there right now who are calling themselves prophets and making prognostications and making statements and saying, thus saith the Lord. There's a whole lot of warning about that in Scripture, okay? Uh, I would invite anyone to, uh, to step into the Old Testament prophets and look at some of the warnings that are presented there. Um, then there are those that call themselves bishops and apostles, and they rule without accountability. The apostle so-and-so of this church, the bishop so-and-so of this church. Now, there are churches like Methodist churches, Episcopal churches, Catholic churches, and so forth, where bishop is sort of an office, and you kind of work your way into the office, and you know the church structure and hierarchy is behind it. We can talk about that in a whole other way. But the folks that I'm talking about among Pentecostals and Charismatics are self-proclaimed. Right um, now, I'm a pastor, but that doesn't elevate me. It puts me in a role of significant responsibility. That means I'm an overseer. That's what a bishop is. But this word bishop has this sort of elevated, powerful 
something behind it, right? And these folks have a tendency to like that because it causes them to be looked up to and it allows them to uh, really rule without, as I said, accountability. And then there are folks that call themselves apostles. You know what an apostle is? An apostle is a messenger. It's an ambassador. It's someone who's sent out. The, the closest thing to an apostle today is a missionary. But see, these folks like the authoritative title of apostle that puts them above the bishop, right? So you got the deacons, maybe some pastors here. Then you got the bishop. And then you got the apostle, you know? And this isn't promoted within a denomination that has a structure and has, uh, you know, a, an order and a way of going about this. This is just people that call themselves this. I have the same problem with people who just spring up and call themselves pastor so-and-so. I didn't ask for this job. I was called to this job. I came to the pastor that I was working under as a youth minister. I started working as a youth minister. I started working as a volunteer with young people. And I went to seminary. I got my degree in seminary. And uh, I started working at a church part-time as a youth minister. Didn't say, I'm going to do youth ministry until I get promoted to be a pastor. I thought I was called to teenagers, and I just worked with teenagers. When I graduated from seminary, I believed that I was called to full-time ministry. I was called to get my living by preaching the gospel, and that church wasn't ready to have a full-time youth minister, even though they had a full-time youth ministry and I was doing it. So I put my resume out there and got responses from several churches, got, resp got a response from a church right across town in Garland, Texas, of all places. So I drove over here from the colony, Texas, drove under the parking lot of Freeman Heights Baptist Church, and I was like, eh, this looks like kind of a traditional church. I'm not really sure that this is what I want to do. So I was kind of skeptical and went in the back room, sat down, and you know, they did this whole table full of people interviewing me. I asked them as many questions as they asked me. But I really liked the pastor there, still like him. His name is Larry Venable, great guy. And, uh, you know, I could see myself working with him. Uh, okay. Now, if you're not the pastor, the senior pastor, you need to be willing to serve under that senior pastor because that's the person that's responsible for that ministry. And I could see myself doing that. But what I did is I asked him if he would, because he wanted me there. And I asked him if he would have uh, just some sort of a youth meeting where the teenagers were kind of doing their thing that I could come and observe and they just didn't know who I was. So he came up with this meeting. Um, they didn't have a youth minister at the time. And so Larry, they're the ones that own The Rock, the Recreation Outreach Center over there. And that was another thing that made me interested in the church. I was like, you know what? They look traditional on the outside, but they've got these ministries that are not so much so. So he did this meeting uh, at The Rock. Uh, I think he called it like Monday Night Madness or something, but it was just your typical youth crazy games going on all over the building and teenagers running around. And there was in the middle of the, of the rock, because back then it hadn't been uh, altered too much. It had been the Metro Racket and Fitness Club. In fact, back then it wasn't even called the rock. It was just called Metro um, because the church bought it out of receivership. It had gone bankrupt and they bought the building out of receivership. So there was like this little middle kiosk area, kind of, you know, where you go into a gym and you, and you check in. 
Like I walk into Lifetime, there's a desk in the front, you walk up, and now you got to like scan your face and, you know, see if you've got a temperature and all this other stuff. But you always have to check in at a gym, you know, show your card, whatever. And so there was this little kiosk in the middle as you came in. And so I, I stood in that little kiosk. This, these kids didn't know who I was. They probably didn't care who I was. And they're running all over the building. There was one particular kid that was cracking me up. He was running all over the building. He had more energy than three kids, right? And so within a youth group, you have kind of the older teens that are too cool for school, you know? And then you have the younger kids that are just proud to be there. They're just excited to be there. They're just, I'm in seventh grade and I'm in the youth group, you know, that type of thing. This kid was running all over the room. Now, The Rock had a pool at that time out in the, out in the back. And so they had some sort of an activity where you, you had to go get in the pool. Well, this kid apparently had not brought his own swim trunks or he had an older brother's swim trunks or something like that. But he comes running out and he's got these swim trunks on that are clear, clear up to here and down to here. The legs are this wide. It's hysterical, right? And then they had to do something where they had to eat a banana. He goes, I'll eat the banana. I'll eat the banana. You know, he's just running all over. Long story short, that little 12-year-old was Craig Wilson, right? So I'm there, and I'm just kind of trying to, you know, see what the Lord wants. What is the Lord calling me to do? Who is he calling me to minister to? And then when I came to the conclusion of my time there, I mentioned to the pastor there that I thought the Lord might be calling me to start a church. He said, I think that's a good idea. He took me to the denominational leaders, Baptist General Convention of Texas, Dallas Baptist Association. They said, we think that's a good idea. We went through the steps. I, you know, put the word out, let people know that this is what I thought the Lord was calling me to do. And not a lot of people came out, but a few people came out. We formed this church. And now we've been going for 21 years. Not in this location, um, but in uh, Richardson and Garland the whole time. The point is, you don't just spring up one day and say, hey, I'm a pastor and I'm starting a church. There has to be a call calling on your life and a calling to do that. But there are people, I've had people approach me and ask me, what's your job like? As though they just want to do this job. They just want an income. And I say to them what was said to me, actually, if you can do anything other than preach the gospel and be happy doing it, that's what you need to do. Now, we're all called to share the gospel, but we're not all called to pastor a church. We're not all called to preach the gospel. We're not all called to do what each of you are called to do, and you do have a call on your life, right? But nobody should seek to be a pastor or seek to be a preacher because they want popularity, because they want money, because they want power. Those are the wrong reasons to do any of this. But apparently, that's what we have going on with, uh, with these folks, okay? Um, there's also bad teaching or practice in right-wing fundamentalist churches, and these can be Baptist churches, Bible churches, um, all sorts of other uh, denominational labels and names, Um Prejudice and moral and or theological superiority is found in these, uh, in these churches. Bigotry and disrespect or contempt for various groups of people, right? Contempt for 
um, homosexuals, contempt for Muslims, making a debatable theological position the test of fellowship with other Bible-believing Christians. Calvinism, which I mentioned earlier, cessationism. What does that mean? That means we believe the gifts have passed away. There are, there are no more gifts of the Spirit. That was all for the first century. Now we just focus on the Bible. You might have thought, by what I said earlier, that I don't think there is any longer a gift of prophecy. I do. But I think that that prophecy is not a self-proclaimed prophecy. It's someone who is, who is uh, preaching the Word of God. To a degree, what I've been doing for you tonight, in addition to teaching, is a kind of prophecy because it's telling you how the Scripture is to be applied to your life, right? Um, dispensationalism is a, another divider. That is a way of looking at revelation and end times and saying, if you don't believe that, you know, this is the way it's going to be, then you can't be a part of us, right? Um, I was talking to one of our, uh, our young people recently about folks that believe the King James Bible is the only Bible that you can read. If that's a source of division, then that's not a healthy thing. Right? If you read the King James, I think that's awesome. But if you use your particular translation of Scripture as a means of separating yourself from other people, then that's not healthy. Right now, we're in a position where Christians need to all band together. We need to agree to disagree about certain things, and it's okay. So somebody can be a Calvinist, somebody can be a dispensationalist, somebody can be cessationist, somebody can be KJV only. And we can agree to disagree, and we can have fellowship, and we can love each other, and we can continue to teach and believe the Scripture. But what we find is that there is this tendency to divide people up into these groups and into these camps. It's unhealthy. This is why I like C.S. Lewis's perspective with his book, Mere Christianity. The reason he called it Mere Christianity is because he was trying to show the, what he said he said, I'm trying to guide you into the hallway. And down this hallway, there are all sorts of doors that enter into various fellowships. Now, C.S. Lewis was an Anglican. Okay? There's things that I would agree with um, that Anglicans believe. There's things that I would not agree with that Anglicans believe. But interestingly, C.S. Lewis was willing to say, although he was an Anglican, he could get along with all of these other folks and say, here is the basic Christian position. There is a basic Christian position that should be the source of fellowship for all of us, right? Now, I'm not an ecumenical Christian, which means that you just accept everybody that claims to be a Christian no matter what. I think that there is a, uh, there is a test, if you will, of Christianity. Um, the term fundamentalist has gotten a really, really bad rap today, and for, for good reason. It's applied to people that are very narrow, as, as I've been uh, discussing here. But interestingly, there was a 12-volume series uh, called The Fundamentals that was produced in the early part of the 20th century um, that 
Uh, well, let me read the, the definition of this particular document from the Dictionary of Christianity in America. The fundamentals, 1910 to 1915, in order to identify and overcome what was wrong with modern religion and society, they criticized Romanism, that would be Roman Catholicism, Mormonism, Christian science, atheism, spiritualism, modern philosophy, and socialism. But they most objective to, objected to liberal theology, German higher criticism, Darwinism, and the underlying naturalistic assumptions that led to the rejection of the inspiration of the Bible and the supernaturalistic basis of Christianity. For the most part, the fundamentals, this series of books, were scholarly, well-reasoned, carefully nuanced, and polite. In time, however, fundamentalists learned to narrow their list of concerns and become more militant in their approach. Here are what have been called the five fundamentals, and this came out of the Presbyterian Church when they were having their battle for the Bible. And I'm going to conclude with these five fundamentals because I will tell you I think this is still a good source for fellowship, right? That those who can get behind these five fundamentals, although they may disagree on other issues, can still have fellowship. Number one, the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. In other words, the Bible is the Word of God. Amen? Christ's virgin birth. Christ's virgin birth is important because Jesus is the Son of God, not just another human being. The virgin birth is important. Three, Christ's death as a sacrifice to satisfy divine judgment. There are people trying to dance all around this today. Jesus died to turn away the wrath of God, which, by the way, is coming. It's coming. And the only way you and I are going to escape that coming wrath of God is to be hidden in Christ, right? When Jesus died on the cross, he died to turn away the wrath of God. Number four, Christ's bodily resurrection. This wasn't just a quote-unquote spiritual resurrection. Christ's body was just left laying somewhere to rot. And we're just spiritually, but no, he was visibly, supernaturally raised so that there was a physical body there, but not the same physical body that could be corrupted as was previously the case. That's your hope, man. That's the hope of eternal life. We're not floating around in clouds in, in this sort of nebulous existence. We're going to have these supernatural bodies, right? And finally, number five, Christ's performance of miracles during his earthly ministry. Uh, he did do supernatural things. These signs pointed to his divine origin. So those are classically called the five fundamentals. If you want to find out where Lifeful Church stands, then take a look at our church covenant. Uh, Adrian here was the last one to join our church, and we all stood up here, and we said the covenant, and every time somebody new joins our church, the way you join our church is uh, you attend for three months. If you believe the Lord has led you to be a part of our church, come talk to me or Pastor Craig. We talk to you about your relationship with Christ. We want to make sure that you've been baptized after you have come to a personal knowledge of faith in Christ, that you've been baptized by immersion, okay? Um, that you believe you've been called to be a part of this church, and that you can agree with that covenant, which you can find online. Just go to lifefulchurch.com. We also affirm the Baptist faith and message statement. Um, there are two versions of that, 1963, and then there's a revision in 2000. And if you go to our website and you click about, 
you can find a, uh, a link to that. I am not ashamed to say that I was raised uh, my faith in any event. I didn't come to Christ until I was 16 um, in a Baptist context, and the majority of the theology that I teach comes out of that context. People that say, oh, we just have a non-denominational church. You're coming from a perspective. What I always want to know is, where were your ministers trained? Because there are non-denominational churches that are really Assembly of God churches. There are non-denominational churches that are really Baptist churches. There are non-denominational churches that are really Presbyterian churches. That's their polity. That's their doctrine. That's what I want to know. So for the first decade that we had this church, we were peripherally involved with the denomination that helped start the church. But when we reconstituted as Lifewell Church in 2013, when we changed the name, um, I put our church under the Baptist General Convention of Texas more directly, right? Now, we still have a non-denominational outreach, and I will tell you that half or really more, probably the majority of the people that attend our church, do not come out of a Baptist context, and we don't push that. But there are a lot of churches that are like us, right? So um, Rick Warren's church, Saddleback Church in California, he's a Baptist, kids. He never says it, does he? But see, I want to know where people come from because then I find out how they're educated. I find out where they're coming from theologically. And then we can say, I agree or disagree with these doctrines. And we can move along those lines. So I'm just going to tell you that. But we also affirm uh, the Lausanne Covenant. Uh, that's, from, that's an evangelical document. Now, evangelical is used exclusively in a political sense today, but evangelical is a very good uh, um, term and uh, it comes from a very, very good perspective from uh, the, uh, the, the religious uh, background of it because it means those who believe in and preach the gospel. So once again, if you go to About on our church's website and you click the, you click the little document there, it'll take you to the Lausanne Covenant, and you can read that, and then you can look at what we're about. But you can also see that there are statements that I make there in addition to uh, the covenant. So I want you to understand that so that you you know where we're coming from theologically, and uh, you can make your own determinations as far as how you want to align with us, okay? So that's pretty much it for the evening, and hopefully you guys will uh, be blessed, and I will see you again on Sunday when we're going to talk about hope. We're going to light this candle Sunday, and this is peace and the testimony of the angels. So I hope you're here Sunday. God bless you guys.